Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. Our species' treatment of other animals raises deep questions of conscience, of consciousness, and of the consequences of human actions for other living beings. These are questions of science, but also questions of law and of power. Often, they're questions of who counts and who doesn't. Throughout their careers, in distinct but related ways, our two guests today have made the case, in writing, in the courtroom, and in the classroom, that harms to other forms of life, including animals, the environment, and future generations, matter profoundly. Rather than accepting that these other beings reside outside the scope of law, they have argued that we must work to expand our moral imaginations and strive, be it ever asymptotically, toward the goal of universal recognition and respect for life. Professors Douglas Kaiser and Jonathan Lovorn are the faculty co-directors of the Yale Law School's new Law, Ethics, and Animals program, also known as LEAP. Viveka is the executive director of that program. LEAP is a multidisciplinary think-and-do tank dedicated to inspiring and empowering Yale scholars and students to address industrialized animal cruelty and its impacts and to advance positive legal and political change for animals, people, and the environment upon which they depend. In fall 2017, Lovorn and Kaiser co-taught the first full-credit course on animal law offered in Yale Law School's history, building on years of growing student interest and reading groups. The class marked the beginning of a creative partnership and a dynamic collaboration between one of the nation's most distinguished environmental law scholars and one of the nation's most accomplished animal law practitioners. Doug Kaiser is the faculty co-director of the Law, Ethics, and Animals program, deputy dean, and Joseph M. Field, 55, professor of law at Yale Law School. He teaches and researches in the fields of torts, animal law, environmental law, climate change, products liability, and risk regulation. His work, including his book, Regulating from Nowhere, Environmental Law and the Search for Objectivity, studies the way that society uses laws and regulations to prevent, manage, and respond to threats of harm to life. In recent years, he's had a particular focus on climate change law and policy because climate change will bring harm to life on an almost unimaginable scale. Jonathan Lovorn is widely recognized as one of the most experienced and creative litigators and strategists for animal protection in the nation. For more than a decade, John has served as chief counsel and senior vice president for animal protection litigation at the Humane Society of the United States, where he founded, built, and manages the nation's largest animal protection litigation program. Lovorn is a lecturer, senior research scholar, and faculty co-director of the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. His teaching and scholarship focus on the intersection of animal law, environmental law, and food policy, and the search for practical legal solutions that advance diverse public interest causes. He has argued dozens of successful cases on behalf of animals and the environment, written hundreds of state and federal animal protection laws, and served as the primary legal strategist for major animal protection ballot measures. Professors Doug Kaiser and John Lovorn, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. We're delighted to Thank be here. Thank you for having us. Why is animal law important? Why teach and study animal law, and why now? Well, there's an immediate answer to the question, which has to do with the enormous urgency of climate change. 
which is deeply bound up with the way that we treat animals, particularly the way in which we treat industrial animal agriculture, um, which, depending on who you listen to, is estimated to be upwards of 16% or more of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that also happens to be the location where the vast majority of animal mistreatment that's happening today on the planet is occurring. And it's comparatively um, an under-regulated emission source, to put it mildly. So there's an immediate pressing need to address the issue of animals as part of the climate change problem. Climate change also will impact animals in enormously powerful ways, and not just at the extinction level, which is quite well known, I think, in popular attention and certainly well known to policymakers, but also at the sub-extinction level, that animals throughout the world will suffer and suffer in some cases quite extreme and deplorable harm as a result of the changing climate, just, just as humans will as well. Stepping back a bit, though, thinking about the larger role of an animal program at a place like Yale Law School, it, to me, is an extension of the same question that almost all of our activities and our teaching and our research asks, which is how can we use law to promote a more equitable, inclusive, and sustainable society and planet. And a community of communities ought to include not only other societies and other polities and future generations, other generations, but it ought to include other forms of life. And so that's one of the motivating factors, at least for me, to join this endeavor. Yeah, and it's not just how much we need a new focus in how we look at animals and the law, but animal law itself is desperately in need of a rethinking and upgrade. So many of the large-scale industrial harms Doug is talking about, animal law has no framework for that. Animal law historically has been very focused on one-off acts of individual animal cruelty and in many ways can miss the larger suffering going on, the larger picture. So one of the exciting things about doing animal law now at Yale is we're at a crossroads with animal law, and I think it's a great time to rethink what we're doing with animal law and think about upgrading it so that it can address the huge existential threats like climate change that Doug is talking about. So the two of you starting this spring are together teaching a very exciting new course called the CAFE Law and Policy Lab, which is an acronym standing for Climate, Animals, Food, and the Environment Law and Policy Lab, in which students will be addressing some of the externalized costs of industrial animal agriculture and trying to expand the toolkit, both in terms of ideas and, and practical strategies for addressing harms to animals, people, the environment, and more from industrial animal farming. Can you, can you tell us more about what the CAFE Lab is? what the approach to quote-unquote animal law is within that and, and what these students will be working on in the spring. Sure. The real purpose of the CAFE Lab is to address the pressing need that both Doug and I found in dealing with animal law and climate change and environmental law uh, to propagate and explore really multi-justice solutions to some of the largest problems we have around food and climate and animals. So much of our work is siloed. Students come into law school and they're pretty quickly either sorted into the animal law camp or the environmental camp or worker rights or, or uh, whatever it is. And so the CAFE Lab is trying to undo a lot of that sorting and see if we can get students working together across 
different justice issues to find interventions, either legislative, litigation, uh, institutional policy. So we want to turn that traditional clinical model on its head, where there's the environmental clinic and the animal clinic and the workers' rights clinic, and bring all the students together and actually force them to look at solutions and build solutions that resonate across multiple justice issues. So there's no question that we need a lot of new ideas with regard to climate and specifically climate and animals and food. And so in our conceit, we're hoping that the lab will be a place where we might be able to develop those and develop them in a way that resonate across multiple constituencies, multiple interest groups. So Viveka and I have had the great privilege of taking your course, which is actually where we met. And we read many cases that raised the theoretical kind of debates behind the legal effort to recognize animals. And one aspect of our segment on industrial agriculture that shocked me was the big ag laws. And I was wondering if you guys might be able to just take us through what those are, whether it's legal and where to take pictures within factories where animals are suffering by the billions? This is really a a pointed example of what I hope will be a larger theme of the CAFE Lab and the LEAP program in general, which is trying to expand the way we think about animal law. Uh, David Kennedy at Harvard has made this point with respect to environmental law. He says, you know, in law schools and in various advocacy uh, fora, We talk about environmental protection law when really we ought to be talking about environmental destruction law because whether you're looking at corporate law or tax law or property law or trade law, there's a whole slew of more robust and powerful and influential bodies of law that are enabling the destruction of the environment. And a very similar dynamic plays out with respect to animals. So as John recognized along with David Wilson very early in his career, The location where an enormous amount of animal suffering is taking place is also a location where traditional animal law is largely bereft of tools, in some cases because of just express exemptions lobbied for and and attained by big ag. Um, So just like environmental protection law really needs to be looked at from the inside out and thinking about the areas of law that enable environmental destruction, animal destruction law ought also be part of our conversation. And so in some some cases, that's become quite salient. So with respect to ag-gag laws, these state-by-state enactments that attempt to restrict public access to information um, and, and, and visual um, uh, documentation about what's happening inside of factory farms, that issue becomes salient and its harmfulness to the movement becomes recognized. And as a result, there have been important bits of advocacy challenging those laws on First Amendment and other grounds and with with quite a bit of success. But that same larger scale vision of the various laws, regulations, and policies that structure our relationship to non-human animals, we think ought to be brought to the entire picture. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the whole ag-gag effort um, is it's really an effort to close the barn door after the horse is out, if I can uh, be allowed to use uh, that. Um, so the the period of time during which investigation of factory farms was critically necessary was really about 2000 to 2010. Um, it's still an important tool, 
But so much information is out there about what goes on in these facilities now. Even if industry had gotten its wish and enacted some 20 or 25 of these ag-gag laws, they, they lost 22 of them. They enacted two or three. I don't think it really would have changed their trajectory or the public interest trajectory around this issue. I think it's great that the ones that were enacted, several of them have been struck down. But I don't think even if successful, it would have done what the industry wanted in terms of hiding the suffering that's going on inside these facilities. And it's important to remember, too, that those laws not only affect animal suffering, but they affect the ability to document and expose human suffering of the workers. They even affect efforts to collect information about environmental pollution from these sites. So this, this prophylactic effort to keep this information out of the public domain, it largely failed. The information is there. Now it's more of a question of what we're going to do about it. One area of information that it seems to me has stayed outside the public domain and consciousness that Doug alluded to earlier is the carbon emissions and greenhouse gas impact of, of these farm facilities, which the EPA doesn't even know the location of them, let alone does it measure or account for or regulate the, the emissions. And I'm curious what efforts have been taken in the past to to try to do something about that through the law? And what do you see as valuable strategies going forward? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, Doug could talk more about the difficulty of monitoring and enforcing limits on emissions from industrial sources in the United States, which is a long, tortured story, even for the more traditional sources. Um, with regard to farms, we've had years of efforts to make sure that whatever reporting or limitations might get imposed by the EPA don't include emissions. So very early on, I raised this issue in a debate with someone about how EPA hasn't done anything to require greenhouse gas reporting from, from factory farms. And I was immediately corrected by someone from the EPA that Congress actually defunded EPA being able to get emissions from factory farms. So it's a very difficult topic. The EPA has certainly been a problematic actor in terms of repeatedly enacting exemptions from environmental laws, but there's never been a serious effort at the federal level to require emissions reporting or much less emissions control. And as you mentioned, even measuring and documenting where those emission sources are and how much they're emitting is something that's not happening. So the data that we do have is extracted usually from top-down calculations rather than bottom-up referencing. So I think this is a big issue, and I think the states have a big role to play in this, and that's one of the things we really want to explore in the CAFE Lab is as we see states step into the climate space generally as the federal government retreats, what interventions might we create in the food, climate, and animal space for the states that want to do more, that want to step in and do what the federal government has retreated from? I think it's also important to just underscore how much the deck is stacked against protective actions in this space. I mean, th this you know, goes way back to John Stuart Mill. It's inherent in the classical liberal legal tradition of which we are a strong part that we don't engage in regulation. We don't engage in public collective control of private action absent some showing of harm. And so the burden of proof is on the regulators to track the admissions, 
demonstrate they're significant, demonstrate they're causally related to tangible harms that justify collective control on those emission sources. And as a result, it's an enormously expensive, protracted, scientifically fraught kind of battle by an underfunded, besieged agency against an ascendant, powerful lobbying group. Um, so unless we're also taking a look at that larger legal structure, which decidedly puts the burden of proof against protection of uh, animals, public welfare, workers, and so on, um, we're not, again, we're not looking at the full picture. And this goes back to, to Lindsay's point about ag-gag and the effort to, to control information. The industry lobbyists have been very effective in making sure that EPA doesn't have or doesn't collect the information needed in order to provide a grounding for the type of interventions that Doug's talking about. So in terms of the EPA's role or actually any federal agency trying to address injustice in the food system, whether it's animal or human, there are very powerful forces that made sure that they don't have the underlying data to even start that regulatory process. John, I wanted to ask you about a strategy that Steve Wise has pioneered back in 2013 that our listeners may be familiar with. I, we, we can just touch on it. These cases, I believe the first one was in 2013. They've been ongoing, and they attempt to extend the category of personhood to non-human animals, which just highlights the absurd fact that the law is bifurcated in the U.S. between persons and things, and humans fall in the category of person, corporations do, animals don't. Um, and so one strategy that you've been critical of in your work is to just kind of expand the perimeter on the basis of scientific data about their cognitive aptitudes. I hope you won't mind if I just quote a line from your paper about this, which I found powerful, and I was wondering if you could speak to. You've said, I often ask myself, if our voiceless clients languishing in battery cages and gestation crates could speak to us, what would they say to us? What would they ask us to spend our time on? If you were in their place, what would you be saying? Would you be screaming at your lawyer to get you out of a gestation crate now or urging them to explore theories for radically reordering our legal system? A lot of people, when they hear something like, well, animals are just legally invisible, they think that well, of course, our first step should be to change that because many people view that as absurd, but you've argued otherwise. So I have a complicated relationship with this particular topic. So that piece written in 2004, published maybe 2005, at that time, what was going on in animal law was very interesting. So Steve Wise had written a couple books on this. Lawrence Tribe had weighed in, Cass Sunstein. And there was this incredible focus on personhood for animals. And every student that I encountered wanted to work on that particular campaign. But at the same time, people like David Wilson and Gene Bauer and Nancy Perry, others, were starting to talk about doing something really concrete for farm animals legally. And we know that that's 99.9% .9 of the animals that we use and exploit and of the animal suffering that, that we know about. And so that paper arose out of a speech to law students I gave at the Animal Law Conference, which was really a call to action to apply ourselves in a practical way and really try to work on changing the laws we can change for animals and not daydreaming about 
an animal liberation through the courts that I think is very unlikely to happen. Now, the tricky part of that piece and that talk, which my partner Nancy Perry advised me to take out, was the step beyond, well, we should work on practical solutions while Steve works on the larger, more difficult transformational solution. But I went one step further, and this was the controversial part, and actually said that effort should stop and we should focus on more practical things. I'm not sure I feel exactly the same way now because what I said in the paper, if I recall, is the small group of brilliant scholars we have working on that particular issue is more than enough to the task. And what the vast majority of us should work on is the hard work of changing laws and regulations to help animals in the here and now. That's largely happened. So both Steve and I have won that particular debate because the vast majority of advocates have worked on concrete changes for animals. We've seen dozens and dozens of statutes passed, particularly for farm animals all over the country. But at the same time, Steve's campaign has advanced and has enough funding to proceed and is working very hard in that space. So it is no longer the threat that it once was to hijacking the entire movement. I now feel like our forces are more properly distributed based on this sort of high-risk, high-return operation that Steve's running and the more mundane hard work, as I mentioned in the piece, of rolling up our sleeves and getting social change done. I think that this illustrates a dilemma for essentially any progressive movement. Um, by definition, if it's a progressive movement, it's seeking change. And legal systems in particular are often oriented towards resisting change or slowing change or preserving the status quo and order. And when you are part of a progressive movement, you might want to distribute resources along <clears throat> more radical and more um, moderate flanks um, in order to maximize the chance of success. But everyone's fighting for the same limited pool of resources and support and funding. And so it becomes a very kind of tense conversation about where to, um, where to kind of prioritize strategies. I will say that one thing I especially admire about the, the Steve Wise strategy is that it, it is trying to use a locus within the legal system that um, has historically been um, about questioning the authority of the state. So the habeas corpus writ, which literally translates to, you know, produce the body, um, historically has challenged the state's authority to deprive one of liberty, to detain, to hide, um, to control. And by producing the body, the state is then forced to justify its actions in doing so. And so trying to extend that writ to the case of these charismatic, extraordinarily compelling animals produce the body and justify why you're detaining that body, why you're curtailing that life from flourishing. Um, I think that's a very powerful framing of the message and kind of deserves to be part of that, that spectrum of advocacy strategies that I was describing earlier. For me, it resonates powerfully with um, a kind of philosophical orientation that I'm quite drawn to, which comes from Levinas, the great post-World War II ethicist and philosopher of the shattering of 
the Western Enlightenment ideals after the Holocaust and the horrors of that mid-century, mid-20th century. Um, and in Levinas's view, the great intellectual mistake that had been made was to kind of rest philosophy on ontology first, to ask what is, and then to build out from that question our ethics and our politics and our law. And so the kind of one of the most powerful expressions of that orientation is the person-thing divide that, Lindsay, you alluded to earlier. We just take it as given that ontology, our ontology tells us there are humans and then there's everything else. And we don't differentiate the everything else. Everything else is property. Everything else is subject to our instrumental use, control, and disposition, including other lives and being. Um, so if we instead asked Levinas's question, which is putting our ethics first, then we'd be forced to justify this radical exclusion and dispossession of the body and instrumental control of the body. So I think that's a pretty important conversation to be having. And the fact that there's this storied legal writ habeas corpus that kind of forces that frame onto officialdom, I think that's powerful. You see in both science and in law, the assumption with the quote-unquote other of animals and anything that's not a person, the default is to assume that it's different from us and not like us. And this is in part, I think, because the foundation of our law was laid before we had a Darwinian understanding of how we came to be here. But I'm curious whether you think it's possible in the law to flip that in any way, such that the assumption would be not that animals are inherently different from us and don't feel the same as us in a very Occam's razor approach in which they're pushed away. And instead, given modern science and given what we understand increasingly about them, they're seen as alike to us instead, which it would seem in science at least is the true Occam's razor simplest explanation for a creature that has similar emotions and expressions and so forth to assume that they're like us instead. So I'm curious whether there are opportunities in your view by which that could be included in the law or shifted and whether likewise there's space for humility with regards to what we know about animals and how we understand them and that as you write so beautifully in your book, Doug, about how the limitations of knowledge are going to be ever present and yet they don't erase the need and the responsibility for us to strive in a way to, to be responsible agents towards other life forms? I'm curious if you could speak to that. I mean, in a sense, it's asking the ontology question, Mm -hmm. right? Are they alike or are they different? And I won't presume to know the answer to that. Um, And I think that science, and in particular animal behavior, animal cognition science, has enormous insights to give us. But that alone can't complete the kind of normativity of the, mm-hmm. of the question you're asking. And I think, I mean, science, particularly Western science, um, has been kind of part and parcel of the tradition that separates the human from uh, other parts of the natural world and that kind of justifies and elevates and dignifies our instrumental control of it. And I think it would just it would be an odd thing if the way out of that worldview came from one of the most important tools that helped construct that worldview. Mm-hmm. It would be a surprising thing to me. Also, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure. 
I, I, this relates to the, some of the philosophical critiques of Steve Wise's project, um, particularly Martha Nussbaum's critique, which is that the, the drive towards sameness, and I'm, I'm wondering if it's ultimately fair to the animals themselves, right? So the strategy is to find animal cognition scientists and animal behavior scientists and, and animal culture um, theorists and depict particular species as being enough like us, enough same as us, to justify being thought of as kind of quasi-persons. And there's a way in which that doesn't reflect, that's still hubris, right? It's still like trying to kind of pull them up into our life raft um, without actually kind of climbing down to where they are and trying to meet them as they are without presuppositions and without a kind of preordered hierarchy of being. I would agree with that completely. I think that the danger of declaring this divide to be problematic and then letting animals cross the divide based on how much they resemble and act like us exacerbates the problem of the vast majority of animals that we use and exploit don't look anything like us and could actually facilitate that. Even if Wise was successful in some level in saying, okay, these animals that exhibit these human-like functions get into the personhood club, what does that mean for fish and chickens and farm animals in general? And some of the animals, like pigs might come out okay, um, but overall, we could really see a dualistic structure where certain charismatic megafauna are given some level of protections or agency or some other person-like status, and this exacerbates the problem of billions and billions of other animals being used systematically and in an industrial capacity. There's actually very, very few chimps, elephants, and whales in captivity versus the vast onslaught of animals that we're using industrially every day. It's interesting how you use the word charismatic, too, because it reminds me just how absurd it would be if we deputized this framework among humans. We would literally be fascists. Like, who's the most intelligent? Who can? Who's the cleverest? Doug, when you mentioned the word instrumentalize, I was thinking, and she she actually just came and gave a talk at Yale, but there's a scholar named Bathsheba DeMuth who has focused for years on an indigenous community in the Bering Strait that harpoons whales. And her book compares their practices with whales with the rise of industrialized whaling and specifically reports of how the whales responded on the one hand to the harpoons and on the other hand to the ships. And there, it's, it's an astonishing study in the sense that she recovers these archives that describe the whales as actually approaching the boats. And she speaks with the, the fishermen who harpoon them. And the whales just approach the boats and they get harpooned and then they get dragged up onto the shore. And actually in this community, their skulls are used as homes versus the whales fleeing the ships en masse to, tragically enough, hide among the, the melting ice. So it's a very powerful um, comparison, and I bring it up because the reason it struck me, one of the reasons was both cases, we see a situation where an animal is getting used as a resource, so to speak, um, 
in one case, this is a kind of a community that hasn't developed its practices in the shadow of these Enlightenment values. And on the other hand, we see something that on the face of it, you must you might think, oh, in both cases, the environment's sort of being used for human benefit. But I think what's profound to me about that analogy is it brings out the limits of even thinking in the terms of, oh, we're going to instrumentalize them versus we're not going to instrumentalize them, that that itself might partake in this binary kind of unnuanced thinking. Um, and so it reminded me of um, a, a, a talk that you recently gave, Doug, where you discuss and I'm, I'm just going to quote here, you say, individualism, liberalism, secularism, materialism, capitalism, this spasm of isms that erupted in just the blink of an evolutionary eye and that has unwittingly provided the operating code for the planet's sixth great mass extinction. How can we salvage what is worthy and good in those enlightenment isms while abandoning their collective tendency to dominate and destroy in the name of progress? the tendency that has brought us so far out onto the ice. So, I mean, we think with climate stuff, it's it sort of boggles the mind, the scale of the destruction. But I think that you both have really spoken in your work to this, the difficulty of the scale on the kind of practical and intellectual level. There, it's like, how do, we, how do we move beyond this vocabulary that's brought us here, but without getting so discouraged that we just throw up our hands? Anyway, that's a lot, but but I, I guess I was I brought it up because I was wondering if you could speak to whether like this issue of instrumentalizing nature versus extending versus advocating for nature or extending standing to nature, and whether you guys sort of um, see that as a binary. Your question um, puts me in a bit of a glum state, <laughs> and it's especially um, glum making because. They were my words in part that brought me there. But I I mean, I think the analytical point that instrumentalizing versus not instrumentalizing is just too crude of a dichotomy and that what we really need to think about are right relations toward the fellow beings that we share this space with. I think that analytical point is essentially inarguable. Um, Species always instrumentalize their environment in a certain sense, and humans must, in some way or another, impact on the non-human world. Um, but that doesn't mean that there is no difference between the way in which the whale is killed, right, and the way in which the whale is used. And if the if the right relation includes a sense of kind of sanctity and remorse and even a kind of like awe and appreciation for the gifts that one is receiving from the sacrificed being, then that, that orients a people um, in a very different way. Even if the, if the micro consequences of the act might be the same, um, the orientation is not. And the orientation is one that's geared, I think, towards a more durable kind of ethics and practices. The problem is, I mean, can we unring the bell? We're 7.8 billion people or something like that at this point, and we need to feed those people. And uh, in, a, in, in a very, very short time period, essentially since the Great Acceleration after World War II, 
we've engineered these vast industrial systems the planet over that are designed to generate food in a particular way for humans. And, and as a result, humans have been more and more distanced from that possibility for right relations with the non-human world. And how do we recreate those conditions that enable that kind of understanding of ourselves as being part of a community of communities with intercommunal obligations? Um, if you'll permit me to digress um, with a, a personal story, uh, a couple of years ago, I was hiking with my daughter, who at the time would have been about four years old. And we were in Vermont, and we came across a pond where some young salamanders um, were just teeming within the pond. And she had never seen a salamander. And so we spent some time that afternoon communing with the salamanders. And at one point, I carefully scooped one out of the water and put it in her hands. And it was tiny. I mean, it was just no more than an inch long. And she was completely entranced by this little being, this little slimy alien in her hand. And after a long time of being utterly silent and utterly still, which is quite unusual for a four-year-old, after a long time, she whispered to me that she said, she must think I'm a giant. And then she paused and said, I hope she knows I'm a gentle giant. And what struck me about that little moment was that my daughter was sort of recognizing some truths that I would say are undeniable, or at least they're undeniable until we grow up and somehow unlearn them. And the truths were that this little salamander was a being. It had a perspective on the world. It had an identity that was worth acknowledging. And my daughter, you know, described the salamander as she, and not in a way that was meant to be anthropomorphizing, but just in a kind of a pre-prejudicial way in which there wasn't a thing-person divide that we use to orient ourselves. Um, and then, but she also recognized by describing herself as the giant and then subsequently the gentle giant, she recognized that this was not an equal relationship. This was a, a relationship of power and potential abuse and domination and that she wanted to, she imbued that relationship with an ethics, that she wanted to be gentle toward the non-human world. And I just think, you know, we, we talk a lot in our tradition about whether something can be doubted, right? Can EPA prove that the ag emissions, the ag sector emissions uh, uh, beyond a certain level of doubt are significant and ought to be curtailed? We talk a lot about that, but we ought to talk also about the truths that just can't be denied. The two of you are, I think, an amazing and inspiring example of something that the law school here at Yale strives for, which is to bridge the the gaps in, in legal education between theory and practice and ideas and action. Um, and I'm curious, John, as a last question before we ask for your book recommendations, if you could speak to what drew you to the law school, that you have a full-time, more than full-time role um, running a large legal team that's in the field, in action, making enormous change with, with great success um, for animals, and yet you're drawn to the law school here at Yale 
and are a wonderful instructor of students, but also see, I know from past conversations with you, the power of ideas and that law schools generate, as is often said, not just students, but new ideas. And I wonder if you could speak about what makes this opportunity here at Yale meaningful and exciting for you. Yeah, so my career has been about teaching all along in a weird way. I didn't realize this till I was pretty far in that it was about teaching. So after I figured out the basics of how to be a lawyer, I really quickly set about trying to make more lawyers, more animal lawyers, because there weren't enough of them. And I actually was trained in the environmental law tradition, which is one of the reasons why Doug and I resonate so well. We're both in some ways kind of recovering environmental lawyers. And so when I switched over to animal law, I really quickly felt that we needed to train a lot more lawyers. So I started teaching. We started bringing in students and, and giving them what they needed to know. So in a lot of ways, the Yale program is the culmination of a very long journey of integrating training and education with practice for me. And just to be really blunt, Yale was lagging a little bit. So a lot of law schools have had animal law programs for some time, and all the ingredients were here. There were a lot of great scholars interested in this topic. Doug had a strong interest in it. And so when we were able to actually put a program together, it was the right ingredients at the right time. I think being able to work with you and Doug and others is a real treat. And I think the Yale approach, which is so open to reform and really looking under the hood of animal law and what's wrong and what's right and what how we might make it better and how we might integrate it with other social justice causes around the university, I feel a tremendous acceptance and appetite for that kind of thinking, where at a lot of other places, there's a lot of pressure to stay in your lane and stay in your silo. So that ability to reach beyond animal law and make animal law better and make it work with other disciplines is what I'm really excited about when I think about this program. We ask every guest that comes on the show to recommend three books or films or other works that have significantly influenced how they think about animals. <clears throat> Doug, will you please share yours first? Certainly. Um, <clears throat> So I've, I'll share three um, works that have influenced me in recent years. I think we all have a Black Stallion or a Charlotte's Web or one of those references from childhood um, that start us on this path. But for me, um, when my first child was born six years ago, one of the books that I read to the, the infant um, – uh, was a book called Things That Are by Amy Leach. And um, it's it's a very hard book to describe. I mean, it's sort of fiction, it's nonfiction, it's poetry, it's philosophy, it's theology. It's, it's like nothing else written that you've encountered. And her command of language is just truly extraordinary, but also her command of science and in particular the kind of um, – mysteries of the non-human world. Uh, so she, I'll, I'll just read you a little snippet so that you have a sense of the power of this essayist. It's quite extraordinary. So here's her way with words. Uh, this gardeny world of moonflowers and lesbedezas and daphnes and daisies and frangipanis and ghostweed and bluets and galaxies and blazing stars and blood on the snow and mind your own business 
and porcelain berries and rain lilies and chinkapins and withywinds and salsifies and fritillaria. I don't know what half those things are, but I'm just, I'm so exhilarated to read these words. And I read them all out loud to my child, which made it so much more fun. Here's another snippet. Um, which gives you a more of a sense of the philosophy. Sometimes it avails to be a goat. When the grass withers away in Morocco, sheep will stumble dully along, thinking horizontal thoughts. No grass, no grass. But goats look up, start climbing trees. <laughs> Every page is just filled with, with stuff like that. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and then a film, a film uh, which a lot of people, particularly folks in the animal protection world have thought about, um, which is Okja by the South Korean director Bong Joon-ho. Um, it's an extraordinary kind of dystopian extrapolation of a lot of our present world and our present industrialized animal um, uh, system. Uh, but it, it manages to capture, uh, I think, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the subtleties and kind of e ethicalities of our relationship to animals that motivate people to study this subject. There's a scene early on in the movie in which a young child is leading her pet pig, which unbeknownst to her has been genetically modified by a multinational corporation to be a super huge pig. Um, and she is leading the pig on a rope. The child falls down a cliff and is, is heading towards certain disaster. And the pig, in an instant, realizes that its weight is so much more than the child's, sees a tree stump, and launches itself off the cliff, sacrifices itself to wrap the rope around the stump and use its weight as a pulley to lift the child up to safety. And of course, this is, um, you know, it's just a fictional depiction, but it's 10 seconds of film that says so much about the possibilities that lurk within non-human animals, the possibilities for connection, the possibilities for interdependency and right relations, as we discussed earlier. It's really a moving and profound scene. And then finally, um, a, a line from a song called The Right Place, which is by Monsters of Folk, which is a um, uh, kind of indie folk supergroup, including the singer Jim James from uh, My Morning Jacket. Jim James has this haunting, beautiful falsetto singing voice, and I'm not going to attempt to replicate it for you. <laughs> but I will read the line, and I really encourage your listeners to go track down this song. So the line in this song, which stays with me, is, Stealing a tusk from an elephant must make one feel creepy inside. And although you'll boast around the fire at night, that ghost will kick up a fight. Be gone, be gone, you scream. You're just some elephant dream. I needed you like you needed me. People, they need piano keys. And what I love about the last couplet there is um, <clears throat> first that cynical notion that this is um, – this is the inevitable trade-off, right? That it's either the elephant thrives or people are deprived of something they need. I needed you like you needed me. And Hegel long ago said when we're presented with that sense of a tragic trade-off, our instinct ought to be to think about the structures that led to that moment which presented the stark 
tragic trade-off and instead try, strive in future to re-engineer those systems so that the, the need for trading off interests is minimized and reduced. And I worry that in our contemporary cosmology and our contemporary worldview, we just think it is so inevitable and so cynically accept the idea that we have to kill and we have to have suffering and we can't afford to avoid it, um, that as a result, hope and the sense of a kind of moral remainder that forces us to try to do better, fail better in the future um, is erased. And then, of course, the need that's being depicted in the song is piano keys, right? And we could argue about whether that's a need or a luxury, but that argument ought be had, not just presumed. Following Doug is always a dangerous <laughs> position in anything. I, I want all of that to get in, so I'm just going to give my list because I was, found that so compelling. So the first book is A Friend of the Earth by T.C. Boyle, which is this sort of climate apocalyptic book, but it charts through the struggle between in-system, out-of-system advocacy, and particularly in the context of a couple and a love story battling over working within the system versus trying to break the system. So it has a lot of personal resonance for me. <laughs> um, the other one is Night of the Iguana by Tennessee Williams, um, which I'm actually going to recommend the film over the play with Richard Burton and Eva Gardner because it really resonates with this question about human and animal freedom and captivity and what makes us human in the end. And then Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, and almost anything by Philip K. Dick. I was trying to think of the list of what influenced me and got me to where I'm sitting right now. And then the last one won't surprise anyone who knows me well, which is Candide by Voltaire, which is a really very influential book in my life from a very young age. Probably actually read it a lot younger. And plus, any book that was banned by Harvard University for many decades is, is high on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Professors Doug Kaiser and Jonathan Lovewarren, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you thank for you. the chance. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Jonathan Lovorn, Doug Kaiser, and their work. Thanks for listening.